the thing that makes curiosity so wonderful and so special and also so difficult to understand in some way is that curiosity seems to engage us into information that is useless at the moment. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. In the midst of an Arctic vortex, my husband and I slipped the surly bonds of winter and headed to Puerto Rico. Like most good tourists, we tried to sample much of what the lovely island has to offer. We, we visited the rainforest, the dry forests, and of course the beaches, lots of beaches. We sought out all sorts of restaurants, trying local classics like mofongo and rum, of course, and fulfilling our long-standing tradition of eating Chinese food in every country we visit. We joined the throngs following drummers on the streets of Old San Juan for the Festival of San Sebastian and heard lots of other live music and even more from boomboxes on the beach and emanating from just about every storefront. I've never studied Spanish, and at other times in my life, I've understood the language better than I do now. But we muddled our way through, appreciative of the good humor and warmth of waiters and others who bore the consequences of our limited skill. Traveling is interesting in this way because we tend to stretch ourselves and and be more attentive to everything, ordinary things, as well as the extraordinary. By definition, we're out of the familiar and presented with an opportunity to sample and test, to survey and try, to choose to be curious. When I travel, I think I do a better job of embodying Henry James' admonition from the art of fiction to try to be one of those on whom nothing is lost. All of which was in my head as I was also preparing for this conversation with neuroscientist Jacqueline Gottlieb, who researches these very behaviors. Jacqueline oversees a lab at Columbia University that studies the links between cognition and decision-making in behavioral, computational, and physiological terms. Of central interest to her and her colleagues are the mechanisms of information sampling, active learning, and of course, curiosity, and their significance for attention, decision-making, and cognitive control. She pays attention to what we pay attention to and then tries to make sense of it. Jacqueline completed her undergraduate degree at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, her Ph.D. in neurobiology at Yale University, and her postdoctoral training at the National Eye Institute. She joined the neuroscience faculty at Columbia University in 2001, and I'm delighted she's able to join me from New York by telephone today. So welcome, Jackie. Hi, Lynn. Well, this is very exciting for me. I have become a big fan, actually. How do you define curiosity in your work? So You know, I don't know if you know that most of the important things that we're interested in um, cannot be defined, and yet everybody knows what they are. So I think Feynman said this about time and space. I mean, try defining space, try defining time, try defining um, decision-making or thought or anything that's interesting. Right. Feynman also said that maybe more important than definition is how you measure something, mm-hmm. how you measure an object of interest. 
And in that sense, I think of curiosity as the desire and the act of asking questions. Yeah. I think that would be the most succinct answer I can give to this. So you anticipated my second question, which is that, so so how do you measure that? I mean, obviously more than just tick marks on the question, on the number of questions that people ask, right? Right. So a big part of the effort in our lab is to find uh, ways of measuring that, because it turns out that this is an aspect of uh, behavior that neuroscientists in particular haven't thought very much about. Mm. There's some psychologists that thought about it early on, but even they haven't developed very systematic ways of measuring it. And then in neuroscience, we, the focus of much of what we have been doing so far is to see how people get the answers to questions that we pose for them. And in this whole traditional exercise, the experimenter poses the question, and then we see how the brain gets the answer. So we have been working on um, tasks in which we try to approach it is to put people or animals in situations that are somewhat well-defined, but in which some things are unknown. Mm -hmm. And they can actually ask a question. Or alternatively, we can give them two questions that they might want to ask or get the answer to, and they can choose which question they would like answered. Oh, so give me an example of the kinds of questions they might be able to choose between. I think about a question um, in a very, very broad sense. So, for example, one type of question that I consider in my work is a simple eye movement, the simple act of turning and looking at something, of orienting of attention. Mm -hmm. That I see as an act of interrogating the world, asking, what is there? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so one type of question that we study very intensively is to give people or animals visual displays And then we let them look at certain parts of the display, and then we look at what kind of information they they want to obtain, and then we try to understand why they want to obtain that particular information given the situation they are in. So that's one type of question that we studied. And then we also study questions that are perhaps closer to what people would think of as a question in the verbal domain. So we we did a study in which we used trivia questions about, you know, various trivia facts. So that's interesting because the eye, tracking eye movement seems to me, I don't know, as a lay person, actually a more reliable indicator of someone's interest anyway, curiosity. I don't know if we make a distinction there, but attention to something than my testimonial to it. But the eyes sort of belie us, don't they? I mean, they must be a very rich source of information for you. Eye movements and attention were my first love in neuroscience, and sometimes I think that I'm not even a neuroscientist. I'm here to study attention and eye movements. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that is... I don't think that's such a bad thing. I mean, they say that the eyes are windows to the soul, and I think that that is really the case in a very deep way. Yeah. And that we have a lot more to understand about how people generate eye movements and what it means for their uh, thoughts. So, yes, I agree that eye movements are a very direct look into what you're attending to. But 
like everything, um, you know, behavior is complex. And there are many kinds of eye movements. Uh, some eye movements actually just seem to not involve a lot of attention. So you can just sometimes, you know, place your eye on something. It looks like you're looking at it, but in fact you're not. And mm-hmm. I think we all, mm-hmm. you're not paying attention. And it's hard to distinguish. So when you see an eye movement, it's sometimes hard to know what kind, what sort of cog- mental processing is behind it. So that's one, one limiting thing about looking at eye movements. Another thing is that eye movements are also directed towards things that are very mundane. So we ask a lot of questions that are, how, how should I say this, pragmatic questions. Not necessarily, they, we obtain information with them, but we wouldn't call them curiosity. Uh-huh. And that's actually a very interesting question. What distinguishes these sort of, these types of information selection? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so this all goes to say that while I absolutely love eye movements and we, we will continue to study it, there's also a scope for looking at uh, verbal questions or trivia questions. I, I think that the questions that people ask in general, like semantic questions, whether they're trivia questions or the questions that somebody asked in a classroom, for example, I think that those are really also another under-investigated mm-hmm. um, topic, but also can be a rich sur- source of additional information that can complement eye movement. Yeah. Well, you you have described curiosity as, as perhaps the most sophisticated form of information sampling. And I yes. listened to one of your talks where you talked about I, you know, the idea of a spark and the idea of kind of who figured out how to create a spark and, and kind of initiate and control fire. And the question you posed was, is the spark special? Which one I thought was actually quite poetic. I think that's sort of the big question in life, is the spark special? But but in this curiosity context, that that distinction between is this information that I'm gathering that is kind of more mundane, or is there something special about this information that's new or potentially valuable in the future? So is there some of that kind of looking to this unknown future that's a characteristic of that kind of information gathering? Yes, and this is the big... um the thing that makes curiosity so wonderful and so special and also so difficult to understand in some way is that curiosity seems to engage us into information that is useless at the moment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or, in other words, whose use we cannot predict. And so, you know, Berlin, who was um, maybe the most um, psychologist in the 1950s, wrote most forcefully and most beautifully about curiosity, said that this is one of its most amazing aspects, uh, that we become very passionate about, particularly about information that has no known value uh, to us right now. Mm-hmm. So the question is why? I mean, what, um, what, what would compel us to assign value? And there must be some internal value system that we have and we generate that makes us excited and makes us expend so much effort to learn these things that seem to be useless. And is that part of what your research does, is to try to understand sort of what's the, 
intrinsic value and how you might measure that? Yes, that's that's very much part of my research. So on one hand, one answer that is often given to this is that, of course, maybe we have the built-in assumption that information or knowledge is valuable in and of itself. And so all information is by default valuable. And that can be part of the answer, but it cannot be all the answer because we cannot embrace all information. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there are many more things in this world that are learnable, uh, but we obviously will not get to all of them. And so we have to make a selection, right? So you have question A, whose future importance you cannot estimate, and then you have question B, whose future importance you also cannot estimate. <laughs> um, and so how do you choose? Mm-hmm. We have to choose one or the other, right? So that is the really interesting question. And why do some people choose to become interested in A and other people choose to become interested in B? So do you think then that curiosity is necessary for decision-making, for making those choices? Can we make Um, choices without it? So I think that that curiosity is, in a sense, it, it implies a decision. So being curious about something implies that you have decided that that something is more valuable to your thought, mm-hmm. right? Did I? It's already a decision. Yeah. Curiosity is a decision, yes. It entails a decision, yes. Huh. So, I mean, what do you hope to learn by studying curiosity in this way? What's the goal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, So, you know, I don't know, but I'm just curious. (laughs) (laughs) That, of course, is the perfect answer on this show. Thank you for that. (laughs) And that's enough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Um, so talk then about, so what are some of the applications? Because you've done some collaboration with folks who are trying to use this in ways. What are some of those ways? So, so that was a facetious answer. In fact, I think I think that there's a lot that we can learn about the brain and how we think by studying curiosity. Yeah. And what I think we can learn is how in, that in an interaction between two sort of sets of processes. Processes. So one type is what neuroscientists call cognitive function, and that has to do with things. Uh, with the ways in which we process information, so how uh, how we direct attention and bring bring a stimulus into focus, or how we memorize things, or how the brain represents visual images or patterns in ways that are uh, efficient and compact, and we can reason with, or how do we make judgments and inferences? Mm-hmm. So that's the domain of cognition, and the other domain is the domain of emotion and preferences, right? Things that we like and dislike, things that we're passionate about um, or not, things that we will expend effort to get or expend effort to avoid. And these two things, cognitive function and emotional processing, have been traditionally studied separately. So they're different people looking in different brain areas with different tasks. I think that curiosity absolutely requires us to bring these together. Mm. 
and and in a in an, and in a sense it requires us to do a paradigm shift where it requires us to say that all these cognitive processing that we have that is so elaborate doesn't just happen it's motivated so we have to want to think about something we have to like to think about something um, in order to think about it and if we don't then we perform a lot worse at our cognitive at whatever cognition uh, we have to do and I think that this link has been really underappreciated uh, and I think that there's an endless set of questions in there. And I think that when we start to answer these questions, I think that we will move uh, a step up in the degree of sophistication that we can capture in behavior. Mm. Um, so our neuroscience paradigms that we have been using in the lab traditionally, they're very, very simplified. And that's a strength it has has worked well, has helped us get down to some to identify brain structures and what they do what they might do in general terms and so on but i think it limits us to very very simplified behaviors that don't translate easily to natural situations mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we cannot answer very well questions that you know we all care about like how do we motivate how do we improve learning in the classroom how do we improve memory um, in a classroom, you know, how does the teacher use use that in the classroom? And then also every sort of more complex type of mental activity that we do, it always has this interaction between cognition and preferences or emotion or motivation. And so, and so I think that curiosity is really it, going to take neuroscience to the next frontier, if I can... Yes, I don't want to sound immodest, but I think it's a super important concept for us to start thinking about. Ah, that's very exciting to hear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I, I do feel as if curiosity is hot right now. It's getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's kind of coming from a lot of siloed directions. And and maybe there's a kind of convergence opportunity coming here. So. Um, let me ask a, a question, because one place I think it might go is in the direction of machine learning and the idea of a curiosity algorithm. If we could really figure out what this is, if there's really sort of a formula to it, do you have an idea about what that would look like? Um, yes. So I think that if we were to build curiosity in a machine on this scale so some to something that resembles what people do, that machine would have to have an architecture of thought, what we call a cognitive architecture, uh, that allows it to make inferences and to look for cause and effect and to reason in a way similar that, to what people do. And so that is a that is a difficult step mm-hmm. that, I mean, I know many people are working on, but I don't think we're quite there yet. So that would be one important ingredient. The second important ingredient is to link this reasoning system to, as I mentioned before, emotions and motivation. And so once you have a system of reasoning and you can say, okay, I think that, you know, when you strike two stones, 
that produces friction and then fire and then sparks, then that system of inferences allows you to formulate questions. So this is really an important ingredient in generating a question. You have to have some prior knowledge and some hypothesis about some causal structures, what causes what. And then you can work with that and generate questions. And then you can generate a lot of questions, and then you have to decide which question will you pursue. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is how human civilization evolved. First, there there was some instinct to ask questions. And then people became more and more sophisticated in the kinds of questions they they asked. And then we invented the scientific method and the controlled experiments. And there are many, many types of questions that we can ask. And for each one of them, we develop different methodologies. So science is like an, a really elaborate form of curiosity that that has its rules. And, and, and those are rules of asking questions that we found seem to work best. By no means perfect. There's just it's part of the curiosity. By definition, involves a lot of dead ends because by definition you don't know what it is you're doing. That is what a curious robot would need. So there's really two main building blocks: one, a system of causal, high-level, abstract reasoning, and the other is a system of generating questions and assigning value to different questions and choosing between them. Well, and that that value question becomes really complex, yeah. right? About you know how we assess yep. humans make very complex assessments of what's important to us, and also in that kind of risk reward calculus, like yep. what's the what's the cost of asking the question or undertaking the investigation, and what's the maybe potential perceived reward? Uh, mm-hmm. Those are really very sophisticated calculations, aren't they? They are very sophisticated calculations. Right. So you can think of this calculation as a decision-making, like you mentioned, risk-reward, right? So we think about many fields, including psychology and economics, think about risks and rewards, but they think about them in terms of monetary values or concrete outcomes Mm -hmm. that can be measured. And what's special about curiosity is that it forces us to think about risk and rewards but in terms of internal variables. Yeah. So what would be the risk of asking a question? First of all, it's it's costly. So it takes mental effort to get the information, to process the information, to memorize it, to represent it, and so on and so forth. Another risk, of course, if you think of a student in a classroom, could be negative feedback, mm-hmm. right? So these internal feelings of disappointment, frustration, perhaps negative reappraisal of your own personality, right? So you might feel horribly disappointed if you do badly on a test, right? So these are the the negatives of asking the question. Right. What would be the positive? Well, the positive seem to be some sort of a thrill associated with either processing some type of information, like in your very nice introduction, there's something very thrilling about experiencing a novel food, mm-hmm. right? So the the thrill of discovery, you know, you could take it to the next level. So, right, there's a thrill of finding a general explanation to infectious diseases, let's say, right? I mean, there's, I think there's a thrill there way above and beyond the practical significance of this particular example, right? So these thrills can take many levels of sophistication. Another benefit of 
learning or asking a question is that you avoid boredom, <laughs> right? right? So boredom, um, it seems to be boredom is a, an interesting subject in and of itself, and it's an and it's an aversive state, right? Right. People complain about being bored. So yeah, boredom. Um, there is research of boredom that I'm not very familiar with. Actually, I'm just finding out about it. <laughs> I'm I'm just in the process of organizing a little event here at Columbia, and I've been speaking uh, speaking with several people who do research on boredom. Oh. Um, I, I will make sure to invite you when when we have Please it organized. Please do. Please do. <laughs> We're we have exhausted our time, but um, oh no. <laughs> So are you game to make an analogy to curiosity here? Oh, dear. <laughs> Let's see. Okay. Let's okay. See. So I have these little slips of paper here. We're going to each make an analogy to curiosity. And I, I also have one for our uh, for our audience. So yours is a rubber band. How is curiosity like a rubber band? And I have frying pan. So shall I go ahead and you can think about how curiosity is like a rubber band? Okay. So let's see. Curiosity is like a frying pan because it's a place um, where you can kind of cook things up and and begin to transform them from one state into another. So I guess that's how curiosity is like a frying pan. So how is curiosity like a rubber band? <laughs> Um, curiosity is, it would be like a magical rubber band, <laughs> uh, in exactly the same way in that you take something that has one shape, um, and then you can bend it flexibly into all kinds of shapes, except curiosity, a rubber band is limited to be tied into knots, and that, and, and, and that makes it smaller and smaller and more and more densely packed. But curiosity would be a magical rubber band that can spawn other rubber bands and and really transform itself into shapes that look nothing like the first rubber band. Oh, wonderful. But it is like a rubber band in that it's incredibly flexible. Nice. I love this idea of a magical <laughs> rubber band. That's wonderful. Magical rubber band. A magical yeah. rubber band. That's great. And audience, yours is bubblegum. How is curiosity like bubblegum? <laughs> Let us know. T- Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for this conversation, and I can't wait to hear more about boredom. Okay. Thank you very much. On that note, we have to schedule another meeting. Okay. <laughs> it's a deal. Okay. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can hear all my previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. Hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at Choose Number 2, Letter B, Curious. Don't forget to send us your bubblegum analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Jacqueline Gottlieb. Links to more of Jackie's work and the center on my Facebook page. Our theme music and summer dance are by Sean Ballack. Research and other support from our intern, Caroline Kish. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. 
Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.